1: Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am your host Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy.
0: And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek.
1: So, on this episode, we will be discussing the new hit Netflix show, V-Wars. This show is spread like a virus and is beyond sinking your teeth into.
0: Did you hear that too? I think there's something downstairs. Authorities in upstate New York reported a series of attacks called vampire killings.
2: We need you doctor. All the victims have been missing a lot of blood. Oh my god.
1: So what do we know so far?
2: This is a modified virus causing
1: DNA transformations. I need your help, buddy. I don't know what I've become. I am your brother. Together we will
2: find a cure for this. Come, so, come, so come. The man you knew is gone.
1: My people and I are not terrorists and as much right to live as anyone else. horrible as it will be, this war is also necessary. Blood Nation will prevail. The infection is spreading faster than any of us could have anticipated. Oh.
0: We're killing this thing.
1: I'm a doctor. I can help make you better. I need to feed. Join in with us. Or die alone. Extremely fortunate to have a very special guest on our show today, New York Times bestselling author, five time Brom Stoker Award winner, viewers creator and show executive producer, Jonathan Mayberry. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Jonathan.
2: Oh, my pleasure, and it's uh, it's great to be here.
1: Awesome. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, I'm a full-time working writer, New York Times bestseller, as you mentioned, but I also write in multiple genres. I jump around from one area to another, science fiction, horror, fantasy, thrillers, comics, young adult, middle grade, and adult fiction. Pretty much anything that sounds like a good story, I'll I'll, I'll run after it and write it and uh, leave it up to my poor beleaguered agent to try to sell it. You started out writing
1: nonfiction, correct?
2: I did. Actually, it's funny, I went to college on a journalism scholarship. My intention was to be... The kind of reporter that would break the big story, you know, tear down the corrupt government, you know, <laughs> Woodward and Bernstein. I was in high school just a couple of years after Watergate, so everyone who, who liked journalism wanted to be either Woodward or Bernstein. Wow. Um, once I was in college, I kind of shifted gears a little bit from the desire to be a reporter to being a magazine feature writer, which I did part time from 1978 all the way through the early 2000s. That was what I thought my writing direction was, is nonfiction, and uh, I took a hard left in the early 2000s and yeah, I read fiction. For so sure. So I, I didn't actually do a nonfiction piece, I just read an article for uh, Writer's Digest.
0: Awesome. That's terrific.
1: What made you turn to science fiction and horror, just out of curiosity?
2: Well, horror, that's is, is, is two different answers, because science fiction I was always interested in. I, the, among the first things I read as a, you know, apart from what was assigned in school were things like the Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, sword and planet type of uh, fantasies.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, there were a little bit of science fiction and enough to get me interested. And then when I was in my, uh, in seventh grade, my middle school librarian was the secretary for two clubs of professional writers. And she would drag me along to the the different meetings. One was in Philly, where I lived, and the other was in New York. So I got to meet a lot of writers in science fiction and also horror and fantasy and they really encouraged me to read deeply into those genres so um i got involved in science fiction through richard matheson who, who suggested i read arthur c clark and uh writers of that kind and into fantasy from bradbury and into horror from uh robert bloch who was also there at the time he was the guy that wrote psycho and uh, was a great horror writer so I actually got an influence to read those areas, and then later on, when I decided to write fiction, you know, that was always kind of in my head. But the clincher, the reason I transitioned from nonfiction to fiction, because my last nonfiction book had been a nonfiction book about the folklore of supernatural predators around the world and throughout history. <laughs> that gave me such an interest in the different types of monsters, especially the folkloric versions that are substantially different than the uh, the Hollywood versions. Right. So I sat down to, to try my hand at fiction. I, I figured, well, I've done all this research for folkloric monsters. Why not write a story about those types of monsters? And and that was done as an experiment to see if I would like fiction and to honor the research I had done on, on the subject. And uh, as it turned out, that's probably what I should have been doing all along. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're really good at it. Yeah, and it, no doubt. It, it seems like being surrounded by other writers maybe inspired you, would you say?
2: It did, but weirdly, it didn't inspire me to, to fiction, because even though they were all fiction guys, well, guys and women as well, I didn't want to write fiction until probably 1999. I was always a nonfiction person. I did 28 nonfiction books and 1,200 feature articles, and I don't know how many um, fillers, reviews, and other things I did. Nonfiction was everything to me, and then I had start getting a little bit of a a tingle about fiction, because here's what it is. Having read so much about the folkloric versions of monsters, vampires and werewolves and so on, Mm -hmm. I got frustrated that those versions of monsters weren't the ones represented in a lot of vampire and werewolf and other types of horror fiction.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So I decided to write one myself, just to get it out of my system.
1: And and is this how uh, V-Wars manifested?
2: to a degree. V Wars was the second generation of that. The first generation was my trilogy, the Pine Deep series, which uh, Ghost Road Blues, Dead Man's Song, and Badman Rising, which are about the folklore versions of Monsters. Mm-hmm. Then he rolled forward a couple of years and um, Max Brooks, who had done uh, the, the wonderful book what World War which, by the way, the book is brilliant. The yeah, movie he's... not the book is brilliant. He had invited me into an anthology being published by IDW, uh, Normally a comic book company, but they had a prose line out there. And the anthology at first, you know, that I participated in was a G.I. Joe anthology, which is kind Mm -hmm. of funny. And he just went through that one and then moved on. So the in house editor said, Hey, we're looking for someone to edit the next anthology. Do you have any ideas? And I thought, Yeah, I kind of do. How about a shared world anthology? You know, we're all writing in the same overlapping universe, but dealing with a science fiction take on vampires because I'd already explored the supernatural take. Mm-hmm. So I figured, what would be a science fiction take? And um, that became V Wars, and we're often running with that.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing television show and comic. So the series starts out with two best friends, Mike and Luther. They're being caught on opposite sides of this war. I thought you said you came along. I did. I did. This effectively built a lot of tension early on. I don't know how much time I have here, so you better go. I'm not giving up on you, Mike. Go.
2: You're letting him go?
0: Yes, I am. How long have you all been? Bloods. We call ourselves Bloods. Look, we've all seen the
1: news. We know that you're the first one. Patient Zero. This entire crew, they're ready to follow you. They need a leader. For what? In case you haven't noticed, people try to kill us. As long as we are alone, we will be hunted until we're dead. But maybe together, we can find a way to survive. isn't much of an army these are just the ones within driving distance there are more joining up every day look every blood is in danger everywhere we need somebody to rally behind
2: it has to be you Michael
1: what were you hoping the audience would take away from this arc
2: in the book they are not friends they are complete strangers in the book. TV shows and, and books are often different. In the book, the character of Luther Swann in the show's is Ian Somerhalder's character, mm-hmm. is not a research physician. He's a folklorist whose specialty is all the different kinds of vampires and, and folklore. So when somebody commits a series of murders that the police think is, is an attempt by a madman to emulate vampires, they bring him in as, as a consultant. And then, through the course of the book, he realizes that this guy is not pretending to be a vampire, he actually is. When they did the show, they couldn't afford to do the book. I mean, that's one of the mm-hmm. things about adaptations, one of the reasons adaptations are so different. To shoot the book as written would be enormously expensive. We blow up whole cities, we have a huge <laughs> cast of characters. This wouldn't be practical. So, when they decided to do the show, they said, well, we like these two characters, but why don't we make them friends? Why don't we make them lifelong friends so that we can explore one of the subtexts of the books, which is racism and intolerance. When what happens right. when someone that you know for whatever reason is suddenly the other, not you? It's another you know, it's an aspect of them you haven't really noticed or focused on before. It's like in families when somebody outs themselves as gay or trans. Some families that that are so stuck in, in a old world mindset view them as, you're not one of us anymore. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like this. You know, the books really deeply explore racism and intolerance, so we thought it would be a kind of a nod to the Civil War, where you had people on both sides of the war who may have been in the same family, maybe in brothers fighting. So that was the vibe they used when they were building the show. And it was a, a smart way to go for the show because it allowed the chemistry of the two actors to be that little microcosm as opposed to the books which explore it over a, a larger cultural setting.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you a question about the Civil War and the connection I felt when I was watching this series, because it's very interesting, that dynamic there.
2: And I just want to throw one thing in there. That dynamic is also very personal to me, too. I grew up in a family where my father was in the KKK. So, I mean, I grew up in a family which had a very rigid and hate-based worldview, and because it was the only worldview I saw until a certain age, I was following that same path thinking that's the way the world was built. Mm -hmm. And when I, you know, had my eyes open to the world, it caused not only a schism between me and my father, but also with my older brother, because he's closer to my father's viewpoint. So, you know, two brothers, same household, same family, suddenly we are... As different as you can get. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I became the, the black sheep of the family to them, but they became the other to me because I could no longer be family with people who have such a, a hate based viewpoint. Right. So there's a lot of that all through all of my fiction, but but particularly in Be Wars where that's that's a big focus of the story.
1: So Doctor Scarlett this show is quite scary as it shows the best and worst of human nature. Why do you think we as audience members are so drawn to these types of stories?
0: Well, I think what makes the show really scary isn't the vampires, right? It's that nature right and and i don't want to say just human nature but it's that the nature that comes out very much as what jonathan was saying earlier that some individuals if they're seeing other beings as other might act in a really hateful way even if it's someone that they used to be related to they might become selfish and driven by Self absorbed motives. We see some characters who are so driven by this need to feed that they're acting very similar to what people with addiction disorders act like in terms of not caring about the well being of others, even if they're family members, and putting other people in danger and messing up other people's lives. And I think also at this time of this huge political unrest, seeing this kind of a show I think is really powerful because we're able to see that even in the darkest amount of times we can still get through some of these horrific things that are happening and if we band together if we stand on the side of peace and of light then we can get through anything and I think that Now more than ever, shows like this and books like this are so hopeful and helpful because they produce that light that I think so often goes out in us when we become carried away by some of the horrors of the real world.
1: I mean, this whole show revolves around a virus that breaks out and it chooses indiscriminately really and people don't have a choice. The interesting thing about these characters in the show is that throughout the series, they exist in the gray, a lot of them, uh-huh. some of them not so much. But can you talk about the character building process, Jonathan?
2: People are generally not one thing. They, you know, there's a lot of forces at work in their life. We talk about the nature versus nurture argument, which I've always considered to be an imperfect model. Most people argue that that's just how I am, you know, nature, or that's what I grew up with, as nurture. You know, I grew up in a, in a racist household and also a household where there was uh, a lot of child abuse. And, you know, my sisters and I who went through all that, we didn't become that. So neither the nature nor the nurture really explains who we are and what we became, because there's a third element to it, which is choice.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: in V Wars, we get to explore how people who discover a certain aspect of their nature, like the character of Michael Fane, when he has the bloodthirst, he is out of control. It is genetically hardwired into his new DNA that he must kill, and he can't stop it. Only when he's not feeding does he have any control, so he chooses not to feed. See, Mm -hmm. he goes from committing horrible crimes based on his nature to an element of choice, where other characters similar to him, like the character of Ava, she likes the kill. She's actually embraced the fact that she's not covered by human laws because she doesn't define herself as human. Then you have the two sisters. Now, I'd like to take credit for Danica and Mila, but I can't because John Ederson (laughs) actually wrote the story that introduced those characters and did a brilliant job with them.
1: Right. I I do like them a lot.
2: Yeah, they're great. And what you have are, are two people who are exactly the same kind of vampire. Clearly, choice is open to both of them. Danica chooses to be a predator and Mila chooses not to be.
1: Yeah, Melian kind of reminds me of Blade a little bit.
2: Yeah, very much like Blade. A little bit of Blade, a little bit of Buffy, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of person who, yes, she has what could be, you know, in her case, a genetic destiny, but she's choosing how it's going to manifest through her. Right. Laura Vandervoort plays her in the show. I was just talking to her last night about this. We've been kind of dissecting the character together because, uh, you know, we're all hoping for a second season. Oh, it's she won- happen. <laughs> It'll yeah. happen. She wants to to explore more of, of Mila's role because it's such a juicy part for an actress and it's a juicy part for a writer to explore what happens when you're no longer the person you were, but the core values are still there and you may have to wrestle with them, but you have the power to do that because choice is yours. That happens throughout the V Wars books, both in my stories and in the stories of other writers where we have a lot of characters who are given a chance to decide where they're going to fall in terms of good or bad, corrupt or not. And that's not just the vampires. The humans are also corrupt or not. Yes. And again, it's a choice.
0: Mila is a really fascinating character. She and Saint are my two favorite characters. And I love that Mila always takes it upon herself to keep things together, to help other people. She's the one that takes care of her mom. She's the one that calls Danica to let her know that mom needs help. And... Yeah. When she is in the most painful, most difficult experience of her life, she still takes matters into her own hands and decides the kind of person or the kind of being that she wants to be. And I just think that is so courageous and so admirable. And you're right, Jonathan, in that it's a choice. And I think that very often when we're caught in that moment of hopelessness, when the world is falling apart, we forget that we always have choices. And sometimes it's one person's choice that can make a world of a difference. It it,
2: it truly is. The people who don't act on those choices either don't believe they have the strength or they want to use the compulsion the drive as an excuse for doing what they secretly really want to do. My father used the excuse of having been an abused child. And that's why he abused. That's nonsense. Unless there's a chemical disorder or a tumor or something or something that's absolutely beyond the control of a person, everything else is choice. And uh, we love exploring that. In a second season, even somehow of the star of it, he and I are going to plot out what happens in the second season And really dig deep into the issues of intolerance as they're playing out in our national and international lives right now right
0: I think that's gonna be really important really powerful and also really relevant
1: yes yeah so we were just discussing characters and a lot of characters are exposed to a great deal of trauma I mean, understandably, because of the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, Des goes through a lot. Dr. Scarlett, how might an apocalyptic world like this one affect a person's reaction to trauma?
0: Man, that is such a multi-layered question. I think that um, for individuals who are exposed to trauma, a lot of it really depends on what they've already gone through, right? Dez has been through so much already. His parents have been divorced and then he saw his father kill his stepmother and he saw multiple other people die. And at the same time, I think that he's a very resilient boy.
2: You've been through some really bad, bad stuff. Des, look at me. We saw things last night.
1: Things we'll we'll never forget. But there's something bigger going on here, okay? Not just for us, but for everyone.
0: I don't care about everyone right now. Just us. I think that a lot of times when we're in the midst of trauma, we don't have time to process it. So in the middle of a war, in the middle of a traumatic situation, our fight or flight or freeze response might kick in. Either we might engage in fighting for a life or running away, or in some individuals who are extremely overwhelmed and traumatized, they might freeze and might not be able to act or react. It is usually the fallout after things have settled, after people are away from the danger zone, that they might actually start experiencing more trauma symptoms. And that's when we are more likely to start seeing the after effects, after that survivor mode uh, doesn't need to be present anymore. But what's interesting Mm -hmm. is that we are starting to see it in some characters too, in terms of um, Dez and the senator's daughter. Um, I'm so sorry, I forgot her name. Emily. Um, That's right, Emily. They're both um, having nightmares. And a lot of the characters are understandably really hypervigilant and more angry and more irritable. So we are seeing some trauma symptoms. But I think that if any of the characters were to develop PTSD, we'd be more likely to see it after the crisis is over.
2: One of the things that we'll be exploring is, and it speaks to this point, is the situation will continue to expand. So it's going to be like living in, say, Europe during World War II, where there isn't really an over point, not until you know some moment is reached way in the future. So they're going to be continuing to live in that crisis. And we will be exploring the trauma that goes on when you don't have a time to take a real breath.
1: Right. It's so scary. And we were just talking a little bit ago about politics and things that are going now. And in times of great political unrest, how might stories like V Wars help people cope and find hope?
2: Well, this is something that speaks to what storytelling is all about. Storytelling has always been used as a way, fantasy and and other types of stories have been used as a way to talk about the truth without it being an uncomfortable conversation. The example I most love using is something that very much inspired me as a a writer, as an episode of uh, Star Trek, the original show, called Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, where you had two aliens, one who was black on one side and white on the other, the other was white on one side and black on the other. It is obvious to the most simple-minded that loci is of an inferior breed. The obvious visual evidence, Commissioner, is that he is of the same breed as yourself. Are you blind, Commander Spock? (laughs) Look at me.
1: Look at me. Black on one side and white on the other.
0: I am black on the right side.
1: i failed to see the significant difference.
2: Loki is white on the right. All of his people are white on the right side. From anyone else, they look identical. But to them, the difference is so big and they can't get past it that they fought to the edge of extinction. And it makes no sense when viewed from a distance. Now, you couldn't have put an hour of television in 1967 about racism and not had it later blocked by uh, sponsors or whatever, right. but you, science fiction. So in V-Wars, I mean, these books were originally written in 2012 before we became as polarized in our country as we are now. I kind of saw it leaning that way. So when I created V-Wars and created this story Bible that I gave to the other writers, they would have a framework to build their stories. I said that you know we're going into a dark time right now we're going to be more polarized everything is going to be divisive right so in order to tell the truth we have to use the story to be able to frame these arguments these, these concepts so that people will pay attention to them and then have a conversation and we're already seeing that people are talking about the, the racism and intolerance and climate change and other elements in the show they're talking about that in social media
0: I think that was brilliant I think that was absolutely on point. And I think the sad thing about history is that it tends to repeat itself. And I think that when we're able to learn from the past, when we're able to understand the horrors of what can happen and also the ways to avoid them. That's when a world will be a much more peaceful society. And I think that stories have been used for thousands of years for exactly that purpose to allow people to understand the ramifications of the war, you know, from the Iliad to V wars. I think, I think we've had thousands of years of this history of storytelling to help people understand what can happen in, in some of the scariest situations.
2: Now, one thing that, about uh, stories like this is people sometimes assume that if we write these kinds of edgy you know, stories, that it must mean we're cynical. And it's actually just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We wouldn't write them and explore them if we thought there was no chance of it doing any good or starting a conversation or opening a mind or whatever. So I'm very much an idealist, an optimist, despite how bad things are you know, history tells us that with time comes perspective. And I do believe that once we step back from the point where we are now, where everybody's screaming each other's face, there will be a point where we'll be able to look at this and go, you know what? That was an important learning experience for everybody here.
1: Absolutely. I I hope so. (laughs) So I should have asked this question to you earlier, Jonathan, but how does the process of comic book writing differ from writing a book or a script?
2: Before I answer that one, a lot of people talk about how V-Wars was a comic book first. It was actually not a comic book first. It's a comic book second. V-Wars was a series of prose, shared world anthologies. There were four volumes of it. The comics mm-hmm. came along and kind of fit in between the volumes. Comics being more popular now, people tend to grab those, but it actually started with four prose books, and they're still available. But in terms of writing comics and, and novels, I, I do quite a bit of both novels you're in your own head you're the god of that particular universe you could do whatever you want in that universe and it's it's basically your opinion throughout the entire process until you finally give it to your editor usually by then there's some room for the editor to put in their two cents but the whole process of creating the world was yours in comics it's different because you pitch an idea to an editor the editors in comics are extremely hands-on you write the script the editor approves the script. Often there's discussions back and forth about content and direction and so on. And then the artist and the colorist and letterer come in because they each have to have some say in the presentation of the story so that it makes the best sense for the structure of storytelling that it is. Comics are not prose; They're a visual storytelling medium. So you have to be able to allow for these other professionals to find their entry point to tell the story or to help shape the story in the best possible way. So it's very much a team project. I'm doing right now my Pandemica comic book, which is about ethnic cleansing. And even though I wrote the script and you know told the artist what goes in each panel, I've gotten a lot of useful feedback from the artist, the colorist, and the letterer about whether that is the best way to tell the story visually. And often it means adjustments on the fly so that the version that comes out is truly a team effort. And that's more like television, actually, than it is like writing novels.
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. What was it like to be offered a TV deal and see your imagination come to life on the big screen?
2: You know, I've never done hallucinogenic drugs, but I'm pretty sure that's what it feels like. <laughs> it, it, it was nuts. I, I remember, like, when I wrote the, the books originally, you know, edited and co wrote the books, I, I had no idea it would ever be a TV show. And in fact, for a while, the sales of the V-Wars books were my lowest selling books, which was crazy, you know, considering this is when it became a TV show. But it caught the imagination of so many people. And it was shopped for years and wasn't finding a home. Sci-fi channel and a bunch of other channels just didn't quite see where it was going, or they were scared off by the the subtext of politics that are in the books. And then Netflix stepped up, and I first heard about it. I was getting off a plane to go to DragonCon in Atlanta. You know, I turned on my phone. I saw like 10 messages from the uh, in-house producer at, at IDW. And I'm like, oh boy, he's going to tell me that V Wars is finally dead. Let's, you know, let's give it all yeah. burial and move on. And he said, uh, so Netflix bought it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was nuts. And then <clears throat> roll forward to, you know, July, a year and a half ago, I was invited to the table read up in Toronto. And had all these actors from shows I had seen, you know, like, Lost, The Expanse, mm-hmm. The 100, Orphan Black, Vampire Diaries. I mean, all these, these actors from shows that I absolutely love are sitting around the table. And they're all there embodying characters that either I've created or that I've curated with other writers creating them. And I'm like, holy shit, this
0: is, this is
2: acting. <laughs> awesome. right That's
0: now. amazing.
2: This does not feel real. <laughs> and then a few months later, my wife and son and I were invited to the set. And um, we sat there watched the first scenes being filmed, and it was insane. it was it is surreal in the best possible way. Yeah. And it still doesn't feel entirely like I'm not really in a coma dreaming all this. <laughs> I
1: mean, you're on Cloud nine right now, right?
2: <laughs> I am uh, partly because of the show and partly because of the rather insane level of success that it's had. I mean, it was, when it launched, it was the number one trending topic on Twitter in the United States and number three in the world. Mm-hmm. Just wow. that. And then by the, end of, by the end of Thursday, it was the number one watched show in the world. Wow. It launched 197 markets. It went on to become number one in the United States, number one in the UK, number one in Germany, still number one in Germany, uh, number one in China, and just like all these different markets. And none of us expected it to get that kind of attention. It wouldn't have gotten that successful if people didn't want to have those conversations. Exactly, it must be using the right nerves.
0: Exactly. Well, congratulations and well deserved. Most definitely, that's amazing. And I think the show is really doing such a wonderful job, and we're just both so happy for you. Yeah, most definitely.
2: Thank you. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty delighted, and I'm. You know, we're really hoping for that second season pickup because if that happens, they're, they're going to be moving the writers' room from Toronto to L.A. So that I can become more involved in both plotting and possibly writing some of the show.
0: That's cool. That's amazing.
2: I was made executive producer at the end of most of the process of of the first season. So I didn't actually have that much say over what went into the first season. I mean, I love the first season. Don't get me wrong. But second season, Ian and I had a lot of conversations about how we want to go deep into the politics and psychology of intolerance. We want to hit that really hard because we both share a lot of the same viewpoints about those topics, and we want to plot out where it goes and take no prisoners when it comes to talking about the really important and difficult topics.
1: It's a very valuable topic right now, for sure.
0: And much needed. Yeah.
1: So Jonathan, you're incredibly prolific and I imagine quite busy with, you know, the show and all the books you're doing. Yet you still make time to mentor and support aspiring and new writers. Can you please talk about the Writers Coffee House and what inspired you to start? Sure. Well,
2: as I mentioned before, I had gotten to know, you know, a couple of heavy hitter writers as a kid and they had no reason to help me. I mean, I was just some hairy kid who said he wanted to write, <laughs> but guys like Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson and, wow. um, went out of their way to mentor me. That's
0: um, amazing.
2: And I was introduced to them by my middle school librarian, who had to be a, a secretary for you know a club they were in. They had no reason to, to help me, but they believe that there is no competitive element to the writing world. It's not competitive. There's room for more, but what we need is more good books. The only way to do that is get more people writing good books. Mm-hmm. So Roll forward to the early 2000s. I was running a writer center in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. I found that a lot of writers would just kind of hang out after classes and talk, because this is just before the social media thing caught fire. You know, most writers just didn't meet other writers. They had no one to talk to. And writing is a very isolated world. I mean, you're in mm-hmm. your own head, alone in a room somewhere, maybe in a coffee shop, but you're not talking to others of your of your kind. And um, so I started making a little more official things where after the classes we'd have coffee and and so on and allow people to just sit and talk. That became so popular that we moved it to a coffee house, outgrew actually several coffee houses, and finally moved to a a big event space out of Barnes & Noble in in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, under the official name, The Writer's Coffee House. And um, I think we started it about 17 years ago, before my first novel was published anyway. It just grew from there. Now we have 19 of them around the country, four in California, in fact. The one I run out here now that I've moved to California is out of Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore, which is an amazing independent bookstore. Yeah, uh, fantastic. Recently, they've, I mean, just recently, days ago, they had a, a change of ownership which saved it from winking. I know we are so happy book. about that. <laughs> I couldn't be more happy. And they're moving to a much bigger space on Rosecrans not too far from Liberty Station, and it's, it's going to be a much bigger space. The Writer's Coffee House will be able to move over there. I've talked to the new owners who are just wonderful people. And um, what these coffee houses do, it's not a, a critique thing. It's not like you have to register. You don't have to have anything written. If you picked up a pencil that morning and said, I wonder what this does, you're invited. So you can join in the conversation. You're not required to, but you're allowed to. And those of us who are industry pros talk about what's going on. And then we open up the conversation and it's facilitated and it's writers helping writers for no reason other than we subscribe to a optimist point of view that if more writers uh, help other writers, more good books will get written, more good books will get published and all of writing will prosper. Plus, it's more fun to have other kids in the playground. And that's what I view writing as. It's a big, fun playground. And we have weird toys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was fantastic. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure.
1: I actually think this is a good time for us to end this episode of Superhero Therapy. Again, my name is Dustin. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek.
0: And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlet. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlet Official on Instagram.
1: Uh, hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on our show. Can you Pleasure. Can you tell our audience where they can find you on social media or contact you?
2: Well, I'm always all over social media. The trick is to spell my name right. Um, it's M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. You're going to want to put a Y in the middle. It's just the urge. <laughs> maybe. So John, if you look up Jonathan Mayberry, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. I have a website. I'm everywhere. You know And... Come, you know, join the conversations, have a little fun.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for coming.
0: Thank you so much, Jonathan.
2: This was a hoot. Thanks for having me on.
1: For any of our listeners who are interested in receiving a free advanced reader copy of Dark Agents, please reference this episode in a comment or question to us on social media. We will choose one random listener to receive a copy of this book, which coincidentally was endorsed by our amazing guest, Jonathan Mayberry. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Have a great day. And remember that you are a superhero.